Welcome to the Dimensions book series by K. Arwen. An extraordinary tale of an inner journey and a battle of good against evil. In this podcast, the heroine Kaya tells her own story from book one, The Awakening. Our journey begins on the Scottish Isle of Skye. Parallel realities interconnect and interweave. Step in and enter Dimensions. Hi, it's Kaya here. If you remember in our last episode, I finally plucked up the courage and left that partner of mine, Rick. And I'd spent the night in a lay-by in the van. Not the prettiest of places, but I'd set my route and now I'm on my way up to the Isle of Skye and I'm just pulling into a local town to get some supplies for my camper van. It's still relatively early in the morning and the car park outside the supermarket is pretty much empty. I drive to the furthest corner away from the store and pull my van into a car park space. I'm always quite self-conscious about parking my van in a supermarket car park. I mean, let's face it, we all know that the spaces are tiny. And it's not so much that I want to damage other people's vehicles, although of course I don't, but People don't seem to have much respect for a a white transit van and seem quite happy to whack their doors into it. So if I park in the furthest corner, then it it tends to make sure that that doesn't happen. Anyway, I park my van and grab my shopping bag and I walk across to the store to get my supplies. Inside, the store is pretty much empty at the moment. And I push my trolley down a supermarket aisle. There's no need to stop and explore these shelves. They're all displaying carbonated sugary drinks and no sugar options. They're all lurid colours in shiny plastic bottles. No thanks, I mutter and scoot my trolley around the corner towards the chocolate. Well, that's more like it. I scan across the chocolate bars and pick up my favourite 70% dark chocolate. And then I continue down the aisle towards the free-from section at the other end of the store, passing a lady with a toddler and a young man who's speaking to someone on his mobile phone. I arrive at the free-from products and decide what to buy. When suddenly I feel tense, my instinct screaming at me that something's wrong. 
I glance around, but aside from the man and the mother, there's nothing to see that can be the cause. Then what is it? There's a prickly unease that's rapidly spreading through my body. And then I hear it, that high-pitched squealing sound. Immediately I recognise the same sound that had been emitting from Rick's phone the day before. I look around for its cause and catching sight of the young man on the phone, I recognise a familiar sight. He's stiffened and looks like a statue, just like Rick had done in the chair. Only the young man's got his mobile phone glued to his ear. The funny thing is, the mother with the toddler, she isn't frozen and neither does she seem to be hearing the squealing sound. Yet it's, got, it's having a dramatic effect on the child. I want it, the toddler's screeching, throwing a packet of pink pig sweets onto the floor. No, the mother replies in a forced, calm voice. We're not buying sweets today. But I want it, the toddler is shrieking, and she's throwing herself onto the floor now, having a full-on panic attack, or rather, paddy attack. She makes a strange motion as though she's trying to swim on the tiles. The mother picks up the package of sweets and puts them back on the shelf and looks along at me and catching my eyes looks very embarrassed. I smile. And although the the mother's grimacing sort of apologetically, I can't help but feel for her discomfort and I'm rather impressed by her calm persistence and her resolve in not being ground down into submission by her child. (laughs) I make my selection from the free-from and walk towards the checkouts and start to unload my goods onto the counter. The volume of the squealing noise begins to increase as more and more people surge into the store. I look down at the girl on the checkout. What's that noise? I ask. What noise? The girl snaps back, slamming a packet of tomatoes into my shopping bag. You mean, you can't hear it? I ask. You can't hear that high-pitched squealing sound. The only sound I can hear is that kid, spoiled brat, the girl replies, scowling at the mother and the toddler who've arrived at the adjacent queue. And then the doors to the store slide open again and a new batch of shoppers come in. They're all in a frenzy and they start running for baskets and trolleys, like some panic. They fill them with food as fast as they can. Anyone would think they were stocking up for a siege. As They're starting to swoop down the aisles like a plague of locusts, clearing the counters of bread and cakes in two minutes flat. We must, must buy food, one man starts to pant. We must stock up, barks another at his partner. Get out of our way, he continues, ramming a shopping trolley into the legs of the person in front of them. This is totally weird. I pay for my groceries and leave the store as quickly as I can. But outside in the car park, the situation doesn't appear to be any better. 
The car park is now rammed and people are shouting at each other and slamming car horns in a battle for car park spaces. Welcome to suburbia, I think, as I make my way to the van. Hurry up, I need your space. I haven't got all day, a voice accosts me. I look around and I see an angry looking lady who's signalling her car to take my space. Okay, sure, I reply, but you might want to back up a bit. This is a transit van and I need a bit of room to swing it out. I'm not moving, comes a reply. You shouldn't be parking a van in a car park. It's a car park. Don't you know anything? I ignore the remark and get into the van. My dogs are crouching in the footwell and trying to make themselves as small as possible. You hear all the noise too then, hey? I say, stroking their heads in reassurance. They look up sheepishly and half-heartedly wag their tails. Get us out of here, their eyes plead. I'm on it, I agree. And I reverse the van out from the car park space, narrowly missing the woman in the car behind. Watch it, will you? She shouts, slamming on her horn. I I pull the van into first gear and pull forward. It's funny, but the chaos isn't limited to the grocery store and the car park either. In other shops nearby, it looks to be the same. People are crowding in to purchase things in a frenzy. Shoppers are pushing and shoving to get into the stores and leaving with bulging bags of goods. What is going on? And, and, and could it be that it's possibly linked to that strange noise from the mobile phone? And, and if it is, then how and how and why? So we travel to 18th century Scotland. Meg was out on the lock and two seals raising their heads above the water and and swam closer. Meg stared at them. Were they seals or were her eyes deceiving her? For as she watched, she observed that their heads appeared not of seal skin but had a a green skin with frond-like hair that wafted like seaweed in the water when they paused. She stared at them and they stared back. Hmm. Meg felt almost that they were calling her. Asking her something. And she felt a a pang and a, a sharp pull in her chest, almost a pain. And she grasped at her chest with her hand as a sensation flooded down both her arms and then the rest of her body like a wave of hot tingling energy. Her movement broke the moment and the seals, if that's what they were, suddenly sank into the water with only a ripple on the surface of the loch to show where they had been. Were they kelpies? Meg wondered. I've been hearing too many of Morag's stories, she thought, as she picked up the oars of her boat and continued to row across the loch. Meg 
found it easy to get into the rhythm of rowing. She was a strong oarswoman and enjoyed the feeling of the resistance of the water against the oars. She loved the rhythmical sound as the oars moved through the water and although it took effort, she actually found rowing relaxing. Was it her imagination though or did the water now seem to have less resistance than before the kelpie's appearance? The water appeared to be thinner and it took much less effort to row. It's almost as if the kelpies were helping me across the water, she thought. She shuddered and dismissed the thought from her mind. For although she was confident with being out on the loch on her own, Meg could easily spook herself. Folk around these parts were full of tales of kelpies and mythical creatures that were thought to inhabit the lochs and open stretches of water. Morag was not the only one who wove tales of the water kelpies and the silkies who discarded their sealskin clothing and seafaring form to live on the land. Not to mention there were other tales of sea serpents and sea monsters who would perhaps sometimes appear to unwary travellers. Meg shuddered again. The mist was drawing in. Cursing under her breath, she struck out for the shore and the village with a grim look on her face. If the mist got worse, she would ask Morag if she could stay at her house for the night. She didn't relish a return trip across the loch if the mist was going to thicken. And then it was as though the earth stood still. At least that was how she described it later in her journal. It was as though the volume of the earth was turned off. Meg was aware of her oars striking the water, but there was no accompanying sound. Neither was there any sound from the water itself. No sound of waves, no sound of the wind, no sound of the sea, of birds, nothing. Meg couldn't even hear the sound of her own heart beating in her chest. The mist was now thick and swirled around her boat and Meg started to feel uncomfortable the local tales threatening to give way to fear and even panic just breathe she told herself just breathe but hands made of the mist seemed to stretch out towards her almost finger-like Meg felt a cold, icy air penetrate through her shawl and curl around her arms. Breathe. Focus on rowing. One, two. One, two. But even counting the strokes didn't appear to help. The shapes in the mist had now taken on the form of thin, drawn-out faces and Meg felt the dread as they drew nearer. The shadow men. The shadow men sensed her rising fear and smiling wickedly they came towards the boat, more and more faces appearing. The boat lurched violently and for a moment Meg's attention was taken away from the shadow men to the water. As a long form broke the water's surface, it arched and then shot through the water at lightning speed. Meg gasped and caught the sight of green 
bond-like fins as the creature arched again and broke through the mist with its body. It repeated the process again and again, each time breaking up the faces of the shadow men, cutting through the mist before disappearing as quickly as it had appeared. Meg was left sitting in the boat, with it rocking from side to side like a cradle. What was that? A fish, surely? And yet Meg knew well enough the answer to her question. She knew only full well that the creature was no fish. There were no fish in the loch, or in the ocean for that matter, that looked or moved like that. Which could only mean one thing. Meg refused to think. She firmly put the thoughts to one side, knowing that if she did, she would be in danger of feeling fear and inviting the shadow men back again. Up ahead now, she could see the lanterns that mark the jetty, and in relief, she struck out with the oars and headed for them. She reached the wooden platform and secured her boat to the iron hook. Her mind was filled with questions, and somehow she felt she should be able to answer for herself. But for whatever reason, she couldn't access the information. It was as though her head was filled by a thick fog, just like the shadow men's mist. And that mist wouldn't allow her to access the answers that she was looking for. What was more, her head was now pounding. Are you all right, Mistress Mag? Zack was walking along the jetty. He had clearly just returned from fishing and by the look of his laden basket he'd been very successful. Yeah, thank you. Just a wee bit woozy that the mist got to me a bit on the loch, Meg replied. Zack stood for a moment and looked puzzled. Mist? What mist? Meg looked at him in surprise. Well, the mist on the loch. I've just rode through it. Filled with shapes it was, thick and cold. I lost my head a bit. I've not seen any mist, responded Zack with a shrug of his shoulders. And I've been out on the loch all afternoon. As clear as clear it was. Well, that's odd. Meg collected her bag from the bottom of the boat and walking past, she touched Zack on his shoulder. I'm just checking that you're real, she said, laughing. Zack returned the smile. I'm as real as real, Mistress Meg. Mind if I walk with you to Morag's? She might like some fish. Meg looked down into the brimming basket of salmon and mackerel. Well, that's quite a catch. Zack grinned. Yeah, I did really well. The fish were scarce at first, until the last half hour or so, and then the sea came alive. I caught most of these fish in that time. It, it was as though something called them. They couldn't get out of the water fast enough. Hey, perhaps they were being chased by, by a sea monster. <laughs> Meg forced a laugh and pulled her shawl tightly around her shoulders. Yeah, perhaps, she said, deciding that she was definitely going to stay with Morag that evening. Going back to the modern day and Kaya. 
Kaya, here I am. I've been driving all day and I must say I'm quite grateful for finding a place to park my van for the night. Still chewing over the events of the the supermarket this morning. I, I can't quite get my head around that really. Anyway, I found a small campsite and I, I've just paid and walking back from the campsite office, I get back into my van and drive through the site. It's kind of dusk really and most of the, the places have been taken. Campers are hitching up their their camper vans with into the electricity hookups provided and they're setting out their camping tables and chairs. <laughs> it's funny really, the large camper vans, I mean they're really impressive. They're like miniature houses but I don't really understand why people need so much stuff for a camping trip. I mean I know my transit van isn't much, it's only really a, a seat that converts into a bed and then I've got a box of bits and a camp stove. But it's more than enough for me. Anyway, it's quite cool really because today it's just as well I don't need an electricity hookup or anything because all the parking places for camper vans are, are taken. But the guy in the site office, he didn't seem to think it was a problem. He said there would be hardly anyone else wanting a, a spot today so... As I didn't need a hookup, he said I could pretty much park anywhere. So I drive past the camper vans to a spot in the corner of the site and pull up next to the hedge. And then I set about making the inside of the back of my van into the bed and, and get ready to take the dogs for a walk. <laughs> they like a walk. We don't go that far, really just around the block, just stretching our legs. And yet, on my way back to the van, I'm accosted by this grumpy-looking man wearing a red faded T-shirt. You can't stop here, he says, with an air of aggression and accusation. Hmm. I'm kind of surprised. I've got the feeling that the man's been waiting to pounce on me, and yet there's no tents or, or vehicles nearby. He must be from one of the camper vans. Why not? I ask. This here is a tent spot and you haven't got a tent, the man replies in an equally aggressive tone. I look at the man who's addressing me. He's, he's older than me, but he's got long hair that's sort of tied in a ponytail. And I can kind of imagine that he, if he actually smiled, he'd, he'd be kind of attractive. But as it is, he's scowling and his face looks dark and clouded. No, I reply, trying to stay calm. But the site is full and, and I don't need a hookup. But it appears that the man is not going to be pacified. Rules are rules and you haven't got a tent. I bet you got it cheaper saying that you had a tent. I'm a bit too shocked to reply at first. What is it with men who thinks they have the right to be aggressive and overbearing? For a moment, I'm reminded of Rick and I flinch. And then this wave of energy flashes through me. I'm determined I'm not going to let another man intimidate me. I tell you what, I reply. Why don't you imagine that my van is a tent that's made of metal? 
Perhaps that'll help you get your head around me being here. The man glares and mutters something about me being a smart ass, and then marches off in the direction of the site office, saying that he's going to put in a complaint. I watch him leave, a bit bemused really, and as he walks away, the phone in his back pocket begins to make a familiar high-pitched squealing noise. I watch puzzled, first of all imagining, perhaps I'm imagining it, but no, the noise gets louder and people nearby, they seem to freeze including, it seems, the man himself, in the, the man in the red T-shirt. And for about the five minutes, the noise just squeals. And then, again, like before, as suddenly as it had begun, it just stops and everything goes back to normal. Or does it? Perhaps it isn't normal. People start coming out of the camper vans and begin to fall out and argue with each other. I can hear them arguing about the contents of their vans and the fact that they've forgotten half the things that they needed. And the the man in the red T-shirt bangs on the door of another van and starts an argument with a muscled man who answers its door. And the two of them start to hurl obscenities at each other. And then someone else from another camper van comes and joins in. Everything escalates. A young girl starts to cry, demanding that she wants to go home, that she hates camping, and being outdoors is horrible. It's pandemonium. I've seen and heard enough. I get into my van and and drive back to the site office and go inside. I'm just letting you know I won't be needing my spot after all tonight, I say. But the youth behind the the desk doesn't reply he's sitting staring at the screen of his mobile phone and I notice that his eyes are flickering in exactly the same way as Rick's had done I don't think it's worth waiting for him to reply don't worry about a refund I say as the young man's eyes start to flash a a green colour I drive away quickly I find a spot and set up my van for wild camping again in a lay-by at the edge of a forest. Peace, stars and no high-pitched squealing to break the natural spell of nature, I think, as I hang my torch from the ceiling of the camper van in my usual fashion. The further I drive, the further I'm going to leave all this behind and tomorrow I get to Scotland and the Isle of Skye. Back to 18th century Scotland. Meg sat in her cottage now and gazed out of the window. The air was uncannily still. It was as though the world was holding its breath in expectation and Meg didn't like it. She could feel tension building. Something bad was going to happen. She knew it. I just wish it would get on with it, she thought. 
I feel that once something has started, even if it's a challenge, at least you can get stuck in and deal with it. All this tension for an unknown event is much, much worse somehow. She watched the waves as they broke against the shoreline. The sound and movement was rhythmical and soothing. She loved the sea, loved the flow, so drawn to it. It's part of my core, she reflected, as she felt the tension melting out of her body. It's true enough, but Meg didn't know that she was from the water, and as such, how true her thoughts were. The kettle over the fire began to whistle and standing, Meg walked across the room to pour the boiling water over some herbs that she had collected. She steeped them in the water and watched as the water began to turn a rich green as smells of fresh herbs began to fill the room. Meg breathed in deeply and, closing her eyes, let her mind drift with the earthy fragrance. A moment later, there was a knock at the door and Meribeth's smiling face appeared round it. Hi, Morag asked me to call by. Have you finished her remedy? Hi, Meribeth, Meg replied. Surely you didn't row across the loch on your own. I'm just doing the remedy now. It'll have to cool though before I bottle it. Well, I can wait and no, I got a lift with Zack. He's out on the loch fishing. Says he'll pick me up in an hour or so, if that's good with you. Sure, Meg replied. Shall we go for a stroll? I could do with some fresh air. Mary Beth agreed. Meg collected her shawl from where she had left it across the back of the chair and the pair left the cottage. The tide was coming in and the waves were beginning to lap near the wall that circled the small garden. Meg didn't grow very much, a few herbs, wild garlic, and in one corner where a stream ran down to the beach, wild watercress had been obliging and grew in profusion. They took the forest track that twisted and turned, following the contours of the loch. Meribeth was silent for a moment, clearly deep in thought. Meg, she said at last, you you see and, and sense things, don't you? Yeah, Meg replied. I always have. Why? Well, it started to happen to me too. Only small things. Like, I know when someone's going to call or if somebody loses something, then I always seem to know where it is. Well, that's a good thing, Meg found herself saying. Being open to perceptions isn't bad. Although it can be a challenge when you sense what is going to happen might not be very nice. Marybeth scrunched up her face. Do you sense bad things? Meg knew she had to be honest. Well, yeah, sometimes. But I have to remind myself that I'm sensing events that are in the future and so I can prepare for them, but I can't stop them from happening. And I also see other things. She paused, unsure whether to tell Meribeth about the faces in the mist. Well, what things? 
Meg watched as Meribeth stooped to gaze at a bunch of celandines that were growing among the tree roots. Bright yellow flowers shone out against the green moss, and as Meribeth's face drew near, they appeared to illuminate her face with yellow light. Meg felt sad. Why did there have to be trouble coming? No one deserved it. Meribeth sensed her thoughts and looked up. Go on, tell me. Meg took a deep breath and sighed. (sighs) I sense something bad is going to happen, Meribeth. I don't know what it is. Just something really bad. Then, yesterday, I saw these, well, things, faces in the mist. She told Meribeth about the shadow men and the creature in the water. A water kelpie? You saw a water kelpie? Meltha explained with a look of delight. Lucky you, I wish I had. Meg laughed. Maybe. The faces, though, they weren't good. They were positively evil. Meribeth looked thoughtful. But if the kelpies can chase them away, then... That has to be a good thing, she said. The Kelpies are looking after you, Meg. You don't need to fear these faces. Do you think that's what you had visioned about, these shadowy men? Meg looked thoughtful but shook her head. I wish that they were, but no, no. I think there's something else coming, something that's going to affect all of us. Meribeth looked back at the flowers. I feel light and happy. Perhaps you may be wrong this time. Perhaps, replied Meg. They continued along the forest track, Meg breathing in the air and feeling the pulse of the earth around her and the connection to it beneath her feet. The tension that she had been feeling was finally leaving. She should listen to Meribeth and focus on the flowers and what was going on around her, she reminded herself. The future wasn't here right now, so there was no use panicking about something that could or couldn't happen in the future. Especially when you weren't quite sure what that something was. I look forward to seeing you at the next episode of my story from Dimensions The Awakening. And if you'd like to follow Kaya's blog, it's krwin.co.uk. And for more information on the author, check out kayamia.co.uk or centeredresonance.com. Until next time, I leave you all now with some Atlantean light language.